0: 33. But I want to take us back a few decades so that we can see the full range, scope, depth of what was happening on that day in AD 33. I think something was discovered a little over 100 years ago, something was discovered in 9 BC that helps give context and a richness to that day in A.D. 33 that I think is going to be really helpful as we step into one of the final scenes of the Gospel of Mark. So a little over 100 years ago, uh, archaeologists were digging in modern Turkey, and they came across two stones with inscriptions on them. Take a look. This is what the, a picture of these two stones in Pirene. This is in modern Turkey. And there's a very, very significant inscription on this. I want to read it to you. This is, again, from around 9 B.C., an inscription here at Perrine, and it reads this. It seemed good to the Greeks of Asia and the opinion of the high priest Apollonius of Mineophilius at Xantius, since Providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue, that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things, and since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our uh, uh, anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors, not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world that came by reason of him, which Asia resolved in Smyrna. This is the establishment of a celebration based on the birthday of Augustus Caesar, which is the declaration of the good news for the world. Augustus claimed to be the son of God, he being the successor to Julius Caesar. And so here is one example in one area of the Roman Empire where we see that there was good news being proclaimed, That the Son of God, Augustus Caesar, had been born. And that that declaration goes into the world because he is the Savior. And he's going to set all things right. So this kind of message is spilling out into the Roman world across the regions of the Mediterranean, even in places like Judea. This is moving through the Roman Empire declaring Caesar is God. And just so we're clear, the path that the Caesars take to their throne, particularly Augustus, it takes a particular trajectory. I want to use an image we've seen several times. It's this image of a line moving straight up into the throne. So here, Augustus Caesar, son of God, king of the world, power, glory, Savior. And the reason he's Savior, the reason he's going to end all war, the way that he can be considered full of glory is because He's got a really big military behind him. And when you've got a really big military behind you, you can make sure that everyone submits. And so he is Savior, glory. His glory is based on his military might. And he makes sure to dress the part as well as he moves to the Roman Empire and as he lives in Rome. That's the path of the Caesar. This is the way most kings get their power. It's an upward trajectory. But after that day in 33... A.D. 33, after that day that that Jew, called King, the King of the Jews, was crucified, things started happening in the months and years after. A different story began to play out in the Roman world. These, these people in different cities started telling a different story about this man who had been crucified. Eventually, these groups of people started establishing assemblies, or groups, or what they called house assemblies. We might call them churches. And then there were four people over at different times that decided to write the account of that man crucified back in 33 in Jerusalem. One of them we've been studying, the Gospel of Mark. We often call it the Gospel according to Mark. And when these early Christians told the story of this man that died in 33, they made sure to tell it in such a way that was a counter story, a counter narrative. It challenged status quo. It was a direct blow to the story being told by the Caesars. And so when Mark wrote his gospel, the gospel according to him, this is the gospel according to Mark, when he began to pen that story of this man who died in 33, He began the story this way, Mark 1.1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now just so we're clear how close that, that runs or how close that parallels the inscription from 9 B.C., an inscription that we know would have been tracking throughout the Roman world, just take a look at that just that section of the inscription. So Mark says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. The inscription says, the birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world. Do you see the challenge? Do you see how Mark tells a very different story? Oh, there's good news, but it's not the good news the Caesars are declaring. Oh, there's a Son of God, but it is not Augustus, and none of the Caesars after him. Jesus would take a very different path to his throne. Just so we're clear on what that would look like, let's throw up an image we've seen over and over again in our study of this gospel. Mark wasn't, or Jesus would not track, he would not walk a path to his throne with a really big military behind him, destroying everyone in his path. No, Jesus would walk into a valley of death. The path to his coronation would go through a Roman cross. And over and over again, when Mark tells the story, he wants to make sure that the early Christians he's writing to and the readers like us who will read it way in the future know that this son of God, the son of God, was taking a very different road to his throne. And so of all the things Jesus said in his life, he makes sure to pick those predictions of his death because they give the outline of what's coming at the end of the story. It's the part we're going to read today. So just take a look at how Jesus, at one point, outlined the end of his life. He says it this way, Mark 10, verses 33 through 35, uh, 34. Jesus said this, The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. And they will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him, and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. That's the outline. Mocking, flogging, killing. That's the outline that now will develop in Mark chapter 15, starting with verse 16. That's where we pick up. That's our passage as we end, as we come near the end of this story of the life of Jesus told by Mark. Mark chapter 15, and we will pick up in verse 16. Here's what Mark writes. The written notice on the, of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their ha- heads and saying, So you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. And the same, In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama Saktabadai, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's the scene. Mark would have us us understand that in the middle of all the mocking, that one repeated phrase over and over again is the thing you should pay attention to. He's the king of the Jews. He's the true king. You know, know, in the world of Caesar, this doesn't doesn't make any sense. In the world of Caesar, this looks uh, looks like weakness. What son of God goes to a cross to die? No, a son of God goes to his throne to rule. And if we had to summarize, I think how this all plays out to someone like Caesar. Death on a cross was a sign of weakness, but for God, it was the ultimate expression of love and faithfulness. That's what we have here. But that message put into the Roman world makes no sense. You go take that message that a king was crucified and now rules the world, you'd be called a fool. And in one city in particular, Paul wants to make this point very clear because when he took that message into this city, it looked real foolish. It'd be like taking this message into New York City, into a hub of intelligentsia, high-brow intellectuals, where there's trade and commerce, there's activity, there's schools and learning. This would have been what the city of Corinth would have been like back in the first century. And Paul established a small group of Christians there. He took this message into that city. And at some point, those Christians got real messed up. Of all the early Christians we know about, the Corinthians were probably the most messed up. At least that we know of. And so Paul had to be really clear that the message of the cross, yes, it looks foolish. Because you can imagine all of these people that have come to know Jesus in this really big city, this city full of influence, that some of them came back into their churches saying they think we're fools. I told my family about this, and they think we're fools. And Paul, when he wrote his first letter, explained that the message of the cross, the story that you and I just read, it's going to look foolish. It's, not going, to, it's going to look crazy, especially in a world ruled by Caesar. Here's what Paul says. 1 Corinthians, we're going to look at verses 18 through 23, a little bit longer passage, but I want you to grab the whole sense. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then the last verse here. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. When this message went into the world, it looked foolish. But the true Son of God, the Son of God of the world, king to rule all people, he's the one that lays down his life. Remember, Jesus said that he would be, he came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is what it means to be the Son of God. And as he gave his life for many, he was taking on all the sin and evil of the world. One scholar summarizes it really nicely this way. I like the way he says it. He says it this way This is how God will become the victor over the human evil that resulted from from humanity thinking they are God. God would send a son of Eve to conquer evil by allowing evil to conquer him, and then overcoming its power of death by his love and eternal life. And so I like to think of what happened there on the cross to put an image in place I want to take an image from a, a a a DC movie. That is a comic movie. Okay, we're going to take Superman. I don't know which Superman movie this was, but there's this moment where all the weapons of the metro, of, metropol, of metropolitan the, the the city, all the guns of the city, come against Superman, and I mean they just light them up, and then there's smoke. I mean it's just. I mean it's like it's like World War Three happened on Superman. And then in the movie, you imagine he he must be done for. If if you never knew who Superman was, you would think that surely took him out. Again, don't just forget that there's a thing called kryptonite. Just sit right here with Superman and all the guns, clouds of smoke. And then as the music crescendos, you come to this climactic moment, and guess who walks through the, the cloud of smoke? Superman. Now... If I'm standing in that moment, I'm saying, I'm with that guy. Like, I don't matter who else in the world, like I don't matter who else is in the world, I want to be with that guy. Because if that guy can go through that and beat that kind of power, then everything's gonna be okay. If you can stand with a man who had all the guns of a city pointed and shot at him, and then he walks out of it, I'm there. And that's what happens at the cross. All of your sin, all those moments in your life where you miss the mark, all the rebellion, all the evil in the heavenly realms comes to bear on Jesus. And you saw how Mark began to play that and pull that together in a quick-moving scene of the crucifixion where you have Roman soldiers flogging, mocking, spitting, You then have his own people mocking him. You have those in authority making fun of him. Even those next to him at one moment are heaping insults and then something happens, something we don't really understand, where he cries out, why has his father left him? Something is happening in that moment that has a depth of suffering we don't understand. And it takes the full range, all sin, all evil, bearing down. And then the wages of sin, which is death, comes in and he dies. But he will not stay dead. In two weeks, we'll read of the resurrection. But in that moment, all evil did its worst. And he's going to walk out of the cloud of smoke. Now, in his case, he'll walk out of an empty tomb. Now, just like Superman, I want to be with that guy. I don't know who else exists in the world, but if someone can undergo that kind of suffering, I want, that. I want to be with that guy. And why did he do it? Well, Jesus gave us the answer just a few chapters back when he said, what's the first two commandments? You love God and you love your neighbor. And there at the cross, Jesus never broke. His love and his faithfulness stayed steady. Do you know, who, you know who got us into all this mess? Adam. Adam got us into this mess. And when he was given an option to leave, leave the way of his creator, what did he do? He did. And now, come full circle, this son of man, this son of God, when given the worst, what does he do? He remains faithful. And his love never wavers. Because he loved his father, and he loved you, his neighbor. Why is he your neighbor? Because he created you. That's as close as it gets. Love kept kept him there. Now, that's the true meaning of the Son of God. You know there's one person in the story that gets it? One person in this story looks at the cross and understands what's happening, sees Jesus for who he is. One person, and it's going to be the most unexpected person. You know, in the Gospel of Mark, we've been seeing all these unexpected people making declarations of faith, right? It's the blind person who literally can't see, they're the ones that have faith, while the disciples who can see, they can't understand Jesus at all. It's the woman, the unnamed woman, who breaks a jar of perfume and, and anoints Jesus Everyone else saying, you're silly, Jesus looks at her and says, what you did was beautiful because you prepared me for my burial. She understands the way that Jesus has to walk. Throughout his gospel, he's been putting truth in the mouths, recording unexpected people saying what is true. And here, it's no different. He now ends this great scene with a declaration of truth, but it's in the mouth of someone you'd never expect. Now, I would say that the most unexpected person that would declare who Jesus is at the cross would be Caesar himself. If the Caesar stood at the cross and declared who Jesus is, now that would be unexpected. That would be the complete opposite of what you would expect. Because the Caesar is the one who declares that he is the son of God. It is his declaration of good news, that he is the Savior that is spread through the Roman world. So for him to stand at the cross and declare someone else the Son of God, now that would be unexpected. So we don't have the Caesar at the cross. But we have the next best thing. In the reversal of reversals, you have a Roman official standing at the cross declaring who Jesus is. Take a look. Verse 39 in the story, this is how he wraps up the scene. I don't think it's an accident. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. This isn't isn't a Roman official getting word back in the palace that Jesus had died. It's a man who saw him die. And then standing there. He declares the truth. And so what Mark does here is you can see how he has this this subversive message beginning the gospel. It's not Caesar. It's Jesus who's the Son of God. And then he's going to make sure to record at the end, the final scene of his death, who declares he's the Son of God? A Roman official. You You see how he comes full circle on the story? And how does this Roman centurion know he's the Son of God? Because he watched how he died. He saw love and faithfulness on display, unlike anything he's ever seen. He has seen glory in the face of Caesar. Now he sees it in a new way, with love and faithfulness hanging naked on a cross, breathing his last. What a way to tell the story. So here's where the application is. I think the application is in that last verse. I think Mark drives us to the centurion. Here's how I want to frame the application. Here it is. We're put in the same position as the Roman centurion. We must look at the cross and evaluate where our allegiance lies. Is our allegiance moving away from Jesus or towards him? This is very important. Now, we're framing this different than we have in the past, but you're going to see three circles now that you have already seen. I told you we're going to bring them back, and we're going to bring them back again. Ten years from now, you're going to see these circles. I think it's a wonderful way of understanding how dynamic our relationship is with Jesus. So take the first circle. So you see Jesus in the middle of the circle, and you see an arrow outside the circle. Well, if you're in the circle, you know Jesus. You're in a relationship with Jesus. Well, this arrow represents where you are well, in this case, this is someone that is not in relationship with Jesus and they're running away from Jesus. Their allegiance is not to Jesus. I say this is the Roman centurion, the night before Jesus died. His allegiance is to the Caesar, the Son of God. In his mind, So he's moving away. He could have been in the room where he, that, of soldiers. He could have been in the room where the soldiers mocked. Jesus, put that crown of thorns on his head. He's moving away from Jesus. There are a lot of people doing this, for whatever reason, they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. Now, often people don't like, they don't put a, another crown of thorns on Jesus' head. They just don't, they ignore him. They don't have anything to do with him. And they just move, and they steadily have their life and their allegiance moving away from him. But when they saw, when this Roman centurion saw Jesus and how he died, standing there in front of the cross, you know what happened to that arrow? That arrow flips, so take, that, take the next image. So here we have the arrow still on the outside, but it's now moving towards Jesus. And you've got people in your life, they may not know Jesus yet, but, but they're moving towards Him. So we have got to be real careful that we just don't, just don't call someone unsaved and kick them out of our, our life. Often God is bringing His people back to Him, and their allegiance is on the move. It's shifting back to Jesus, or maybe for the first time. So I just want to make sure that God's got things going on in people's lives that aren't yet in this building, but they're moving towards it. Their allegiance is in the right direction. Now, we'll go with now people like us, maybe. I'm going to assume that we know Jesus. Where your allegiance is moving is towards him. So you're moving towards Jesus. You're thinking about Jesus more. He's on your mind. You don't find yourself as worried anymore. Yeah, life might stink, but you know that he is good and you trust him. It doesn't mean you don't have your low moments. It just means, it just so happens that you're having more up than low moments if you take the, if you take the scope of a year. You're making progress. Your allegiance is, is moving toward Jesus. But then you have this other circle where sometimes we're moving away. Our allegiance is moving away from Jesus. And in a world like COVID 19, it becomes easy to move away from Jesus because news is constantly negative there's always bleak projections. And in the middle of all of it, you have very little control. Not unless you've got some direct line to Governor Cooper and he can switch that phase two order like today, then you don't have any control. And so we're living in a world where we don't have control and we struggle and we have sadness and people are sick and people still are hurting and they're lonely and there's a lot of loneliness. It's easy to to put your trust in a political figure or the person with the right answer or find the magic formula. But we need to be careful because all along the way, as we trust other people, our allegiance is shifting. Our allegiance is shifting. So the goal here is that you and I need to be aware of which direction we're moving. Where is our allegiance? What direction is our allegiance moving? That's what, we want to, that's what I want you to think about. Because the Roman centurion had a shift, I want us to have a shift. Maybe you just need to amplify where you're already going. Let's make this a next step. So I just want to drive this down to something that we can do this week. Make practical decisions that strengthen your allegiance to Jesus. I don't want you to over-spiritualize this next step. Sometimes increasing our allegiance to Jesus means writing the name of Jesus on a sticky note and putting it on your bathroom mirror. And assuming you brush your teeth at least once a day, you're going to have Jesus on your mind every day. Maybe you put that sticky note on your refrigerator. Maybe you put it on your front door. The goal is to do something practical that will help train you to increase your allegiance to Jesus. You know why kids say the Pledge of Allegiance every day in school when they are in school? Because the United States knows that if you want to have citizens that are willing to sacrifice and be loyal to the nation, then you have to start instilling that kind of loyalty early. And one of the best ways to do it is to get in their mouths the words, I pledge allegiance. And so I have no problem with the Pledge of Allegiance. The challenge is do not let our allegiance to the United States outrun our allegiance to Jesus in the kingdom of God. So if children have the habit of pledging allegiance every day, then you and I need practical things right where we are that are training us to pledge our allegiance to Jesus in the kingdom of God. I'm using the United States here as an example of how important a habit is on a practical level, to get us, to draw us to Jesus. And the goal would be you're thinking about Jesus more. You're thankful for Jesus. Now, I know some of you. I've been part of some of your stories. Some of you got loved ones that are intimately connected to Jesus right now because they now, their bodies have passed, awaiting that new creation. Well, golly, if that's not incentive, I don't have anything else that's going to be an incentive. This is the story that makes all the difference. And in 100 years, you know the story we're going to keep talking about? This one. We're going to keep talking about this one. You know what we're not going to have a problem with in 100 years? Our allegiance to Jesus. Because his light will fill up every part of the world we're in. That's good news. And that love that kept him on the cross... We're going to know it in ways we don't have any idea right now. That's good news. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your goodness and love and faithfulness. Thank you that Jesus stayed the course and he was faithful as he hung on the cross naked, mocked, flogged, but never giving up. It's, your, it's his love for you and his love for us, his neighbors, that kept him there. And now we get to be part of all the freedom he accomplished. We are thankful he came back from the dead, and now the new creation has launched into our world, and we get to be part of it. So thanks for all that grace. Help us to strengthen our help us to strengthen our allegiance to Jesus in the middle of all the distractions. Draw our minds to the cross, and so we thank you for doing that, and helping us with that. We pray all this in the name of you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And together we say, Amen.